listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 381. I'm your host, Annika Harrison, and with me is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. Hallo! Hey son, hey son, Annika! Have we yes. misplaced Andras again? Yeah, yeah. 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 That's, That's how it is. That's what we do. <laughs> That's what we do. You know, keeping track of what he's doing is very hard. I wonder how he I don't even know where he is. He no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He's not here. So, uh, so uh, listeners, you will have to do without his um, soothing voice. Oh, I don't know if it's soothing, really. But, but you have to do without his voice, yes. <laughs> that, 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 is, that is correct. And... Uh, Actually, we have a correction to make, won't we, Annika, mm -hmm. yeah, to begin yeah. with? Yeah, exactly. That is about Skepticamp. We talked about it last episode. And the end date of sending things in is not the 10th of September. It is the end of July. End of July. So, so if you want to give a talk, you have to send that application in before the end of July. But it actually says 10th of September on the application form at this moment. I uh, know that we have people in the background scrambling now to change that. So that was wrong. So end of July is the correct date and the website will soon be updated. I hear. So very good. Uh, I am starting to think Maybe I should do a talk. I have never been to QED without giving a Skepticant talk, but I don't mm -hmm. know what to talk about this time. I'll, I'll have to do some <laughs> uh, soul searching and uh, digging into the archives. Uh, I may, may come up with something or I will just go as a normal tourist mm -hmm. <laughs> as the rest of us. <laughs> I, I kind of also really, really want to do one. Mm -hmm. I don't know yet if, I, if I'll if i do the one I'll talked about in Australia and it's at Skepcon because it's mm -hmm. kind of going like turning into my classic topic. Yes, you're right. <laughs> um, so I might do that, but I might also choose another topic. Yeah, because it's it's, it's exciting and I think I kind of um, got the taste of, of public speaking in Australia. It's a drug, isn't it? You, you, get, <laughs> it you do it, it a is. couple of times and then you can't yes. stop. I'm, I'm on it now and <laughs> and yeah that's why I'm, I'm also really thinking about it and I'm pretty sure that Scotty also wants to do one so <laughs> we'll see what happens family affair will Luna do something uh, maybe if we ask her very kindly. well maybe we can't keep her from doing it you know last might, time might she, she was she took center stage when she wasn't supposed to and everybody exactly. cheered and applauded so I'm sure she will she be welcome. She was really happy about that, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> limelight on her. Very good. <laughs> uh, yeah, and speaking about limelight, on the 5th of July, I will do a Skeptics in the Pub talk in Cologne. Oh. That's, uh, yeah, Skeptics in the Pub is always on the Wednesday. Um, it's 7.30. It's in Cologne at Herbrands <laughs> for everyone who is in Herbrands. Cologne. Mm -hmm, exactly. And we'll put the link to that in the show notes. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I would be happy for anyone who either wants to come or wants to watch the live stream because we also have a live stream. Oh, that's right. Very good. Mm -hmm. Very good. We will also put the link in the calendar. Yes. That we yes. update. So we do mm -hmm. have this uh, skeptical events in Europe calendar and uh, we will add the link there as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very so good. I would be super happy for that. Just come or, or watch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, but, but you will be talking in German. Uh, it's in German. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that's, yeah, well. Otherwise, it'll make little sense for you if you yeah, don't understand. Yeah, it's a little caveat. So yeah, yes, yeah, it's in German. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> it will be cool. <laughs> it will be cool, I'm sure. Today, we mm -hmm. don't have a regular episode. No <laughs> twish, no poking the Pope, no news items, because we have another interview. And uh, I don't know if we have ever done two interviews in a row like this. We had Susan Gerbic last week. Mm -hmm. But this week, we will hear a recorded talk with, uh, well, actually an interview between me and Brian Deere. So I'm interviewing Brian Deere. Awesome. We have had Brian Deere on this show before. We did a full-length interview with him on episode 238. This was in uh, September of 2020, just when he had published his book called The Doctor Who Fooled the World. 
And that is also the topic that we talked about in this interview. But we got into a little bit more depth and there's some other things that didn't come through in the other interview. So The Doctor Who Fooled the World is a reference to Andrew Wakefield. Because Brian Deere is the journalist that dug up all the facts about Andrew Wakefield's so-called study, which turned out was uh, fraudulent. And also Andrew Wakefield had a lot of reasons for doing it, monetary reasons. And Andrew Wakefield, of course, claimed that there was a link between the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and autism. And it took 10 years really, to debunk that. But this fraudulent study led, of course, to a lot of what we now see as the anti-vax movement. And for the anti-vaxxers, Andrew Wakefield is still uh, the hero. Mm -hmm. So I did have this talk with uh, Brian Deere at the Swedish Skeptics Annual Meeting about a month ago. It was recorded. You can also watch this on YouTube. Uh, there is a link. There will be a link in the show notes because it was filmed as well. Uh, it was a great. It was great to meeting him in person. He is a lovely bloke, and uh, we had a good time. Very interesting talks. He was very active also the evening before when we did the, the skeptic quiz. And mm -hmm. uh, oh, it was fun. It was fun. He was with us for, for the two days and it was great. Yeah, so I think that means we should just listen to the interview, right? Right. Very much welcome, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. <clears throat> so, um, I think everybody here have heard about Andrew Wakefield and the fraudulent study that led people to believe that there was some link between the MMR vaccine and uh, autism. Uh, we have also heard that there was a, a journalist who dug up all the details and the facts on how that happened. And uh, Brian Deere is that journalist. Very welcome. Thank you, Pontius. Yeah. So this, this happened in the, well, the, the, the study was published, the so-called study, I almost want to say, was uh, published in 98 or 99? February 1998. Yeah. And, uh, but we, let, let's go back just a little bit before that to see who you are. What, what were your background at the point, your academic uh, career, if you had one, and what, what had you done before that? Well, I've been a journalist uh, working with the Sunday Times of London since... Well, the 1980s, I won't say which of the 1980s, but um, <laughs> a long time uh, doing public interest journalism. And uh, in the late 1990s, one of the stories which I picked up on was a, a scare that began in the United Kingdom over a different vaccine, the diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis vaccine that uh, was given routinely to children. And there was a suspicion, very widespread suspicion in medicine at the time, that this vaccine was causing brain damage in children, albeit at a very low level. Uh, that idea was subsequently disproven and a genetic background to the issues that were being identified was discovered. But I, I did a long investigation on that. And that led me to have some understanding of vaccine scares and to be aware of the evidential basis that had been put forward at that time uh, to suspect this particular three-in-one vaccine against diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. And Vaccine scares begin in England. They've, they've been beginning in England since uh, smallpox vaccine was first uh, developed in the UK uh, right at the end of the uh, 18th century. And into the 19th century, there were scares over that. Um, and so the diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis vaccine scare similarly spread out from England uh, to the United States because of the language link and from there to the rest of the world. Um, and I 
came to understand something of that, uh, the way that had worked. But I said to myself, I'm not getting involved any further in vaccines because they are a very, very difficult area of science. Uh, I have no background in science or medicine. I, I studied philosophy, uh, which gave me some grounding in, in critical thinking and um, the nature of evidence. So when Andrew Wakefield published his paper, which was in the Lancet Medical Journal in February 1998, I said to myself, I'm not going to get involved in this until uh, in 2003, uh, one of my editors asked me to look at this MMR vaccine issue because at that time, vaccination rates with that vaccine had collapsed in Britain and we were facing outbreaks of measles. Uh, and even though I didn't want to get involved in it, I began what I thought was going to take a couple of weeks and uh, we published our first story in February 2004 and I've been involved in it ever since to this day in one way or another. Mm. Yes. So how much did you know about Andrew Wakefield at the time or in the beginning? Was he a famous person before no. he, he published this? No, he was, he was uh, effectively unknown until he published this paper. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, when it was published, I, I, I remember on the day I looked at a newspaper and uh, saw his claims. And again, I said, I'm not getting involved in this. Too complicated. Um, but I could see, even at that stage, what it was he'd done because of my previous experience mm -hmm. with vaccines. Uh, what do you mean? What had he done specifically? Well, the thing, the thing that lies at the heart of it is that when it came to controversy over the MMR vaccine, the same people were involved in the sense that the scare was being funded by the British taxpayer. We have a legal system that finances people in uh, what Americans call class action lawsuits. And in the DTP um, scare over the previous vaccine, that had begun with a paper published by a doctor in London, um, a paediatric neurologist, who published a paper where he'd selected, he told ju two junior doctors to select for him cases from the hospital's archives where children had developed brain um, illnesses within 14 days of vaccination. He said, go and find me cases in, it was a big hospital, the Hospital for Sick Children in London, which is a very prestigious paediatric centre. Um, find me cases where children suffered brain illnesses within 14 days, two weeks of being vaccinated. And they went and did this work, presented him with the cases, and he published them in a journal. And when I saw Andrew Wakefield's paper, and that paper was published in, um, when was it? Oh, when would it have been? 1973 or 74. That paper was published then. So when Andrew Wakefield published his paper in The Lancet in February 1998, I noticed that the link between the vaccine and what he said was autism um, was within 14 days of vaccination. Although it was claimed that the parents themselves had come forward and volunteered that time link. Um, and I looked at Wakefield's paper and I said to myself, there are lawyers behind this. The chances of these two different vaccines, which have two totally different technologies, the DTP vaccine being a vaccine uh, made from killing bacterium, a bacteria um, in the, um, the pertussis element that, that causes whooping cough, uh, and Wakefield's claim that the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine caused um, autism within that same time frame 
when they're two different technologies, one involves a bacterium killed with formalin, the other involving live viruses. It's not really credible that they would both have that same time link. And I could see straight away that that paper had somehow been arranged to make it look like the results from the previous scare. And subsequently, I discovered that Wakefield had, in fact, been funded to do this work by a firm of lawyers at a time when the government legal agency would only give legal support to people when they said that the vaccine uh, was given within a few days of the first symptoms of autism. And I just thought, that is not credible. The chances of that happening are beyond infinitesimal. Um, but I'm not getting involved in this because how would you ever be able to know what had happened to these children? There were only 12 in this paper. This Lancet paper published a case series on 12 children. I just asked myself, where did he get these children and why were their parents being reported as making the same allegation that had been selected by a doctor decades before? Mm. Um, so that's how I made that connection myself. Mm. So what happened then? When you, so this was a few weeks assignment, as you said, at first. Yeah. But then it became bigger. Well, when this man Wakefield had published his paper in February 1998, it wasn't just him involved. Firstly, he had 12 uh, co-authors. He was given a press conference by the hospital and the medical school. Uh, the dean of the medical school introduced him to the media. He was published in The Lancet, the world's number two general medical journal. And at that press conference where he introduced this paper, where they'd also created a 21-minute video for journalists and particularly broadcasters in order to spread this idea. Um, where did he get those children, I asked myself, because he said at that press conference that parents should stop asking for the three-in-one measles, mumps and rubella vaccine and to ask for single vaccines instead and within weeks of beginning that two-week assignment, it already had stretched beyond two weeks, I discovered, firstly, that he was being paid by lawyers to make these claims. Secondly, that the children had been provided to him, not as they appeared to be, just routine hospital patients turning up at the hospital where the parents said, oh, uh, my child was developing perfectly normally, and within a few days of vaccination, was showing the first symptoms of autism, which is a pretty extraordinary allegation when you think about it. And then I soon discovered that Wakefield had actually, months before this press conference, eight months before this press conference, he'd filed for a patent on his own single measles vaccine, the very thing that he was saying that people should be asking for. Uh, he was being paid by a lawyer, the children being sent to him by an anti-vaccine group. They'd come to the hospital to make that allegation um, and that he'd his own commercial ambitions that lay behind it. And we published uh, or, yeah, all of those findings through 2004. Mm. Right. So if, um, if this was the case... I mean, he, was, he, he should have disclosed, of course, that there were lawyers involved. He should have disclosed uh, a lot of things before that. And also that he had his own uh, vaccine in, in, the, in the works. Mm. How, I don't know if you, you know this, but why wasn't this picked up during the peer review process? Well, um, it goes to the heart, really, of something that I think is much bigger. People assume... And Andrew Wakefield, who has retaliated against my findings, which I will complete uh, in explaining momentarily, 
Um, he's responded with this barrage of lies, um, suggesting that I'm working with the pharmaceutical industry, that um, I made all this up, um, this is all a, a complete fabrication, that he's done nothing wrong at all, um, is, is rooted uh, in the idea, as, as, as I think perhaps you probably have this idea as well, that somehow I'm motivated by concerns, by concerns about vaccines, that I, I'm trying to encourage people to vaccinate or that somehow I am pro-vaccine. None of this is relevant. That's not what I was interested in in the first place. What motivated me was my first investigation into the pharmaceutical industry in uh, 1996, where I exposed an Australian scientist, well, he was a British scientist working in Australia, who had fabricated his findings on the oral contraceptive. There was a new generation of oral contraceptive that had been uh, released about that time. And he'd fabricated safety studies. Um, and I began with that. I was very, very interested in that. Because when you have anonymized publication in journals, you, sem you, you don't really know whether those patients even existed. Um, which was the case with the Australian uh, fraud. So when you say, why wasn't it picked up in peer review, peer review is not a test of truth. When this book was in production, which I shall show you, my book. Absolutely. Um, I phoned the publishing director and I said to him, how do you know it's true? And he said, well, we've had, had it peer reviewed. And I said to him, Yes, but peer review is not a test of truth. Peer review is a test of plausibility. I might have been lying. How did he know that I wasn't lying? I might have made things up in it. And he said, well, we had it read by our editorial board or something. I said, well, how would they know? <laughs> so what I got them to do was to get my publishers, which... The American edition, this is the other edition, but the American edition, the first edition, or the prime edition, was published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Um, uh, Johns Hopkins being the world's premier uh, research centre for medical research in the uh, academic sector. Um, they had every one of my footnotes, the original manuscript had 2,000 footnotes within it, and they checked every one against the documentation as a result of me saying to them, you need to check this. And yes, I knew in advance that even while the book was in preparation and ready to be printed, we got hit with a 46-page letter of lies and smears against me, uh, making up all kinds of fantastic allegations to try and get Johns Hopkins not to publish the book. Mm. So... The reason we know the book is true is because the facts have been checked. Mm. The peer reviewers didn't have access to the facts. No. Um, but the last thing I'll say on that point is there must have been quite some number of people involved in vaccine research over many years who must have noticed that 14-day coincidence, if you like, between the earlier vaccine scare and the MMR vaccine scare. Why did they not do anything about it? Why did they not raise anything? How come I, a graduate in philosophy with no training in medicine, formal training in medicine or science, I didn't know how to spell Crohn's disease. I mean, Wakefield talks a lot about Crohn's disease. I couldn't spell Crohn's disease when I first started this investigation. How come I did something about it and the medical establishment, the academic institutions, and all the rest of it couldn't. And a simple answer to that is there were only two possibilities, only two possibilities, that that paper was literally true or it was the most outrageous fraud you could ever imagine. 
And their attitude, the establishment attitude is, a chap would never do such a thing. <laughs> never do such... It couldn't be. And that was exactly the same case that was made about Britain's most famous forgery, which may have reached um, you over here, or some of you. Um, it was a case of Piltdown Man. It was a, a faked accumulation of fossilised artefacts to create the impression that a missing link had been discovered between humans and apes. And it was the most outrageous forgery. took the piece of skull from a human, a bit of jaw from a, an orangutan, and a, or, no, from a chimpanzee, and a tooth, teeth from an orangutan, buried them in gravel near London, and then found them with more senior people standing around while he found them. And it was exactly the same thing. It's what Wakefield did. He took children, he took um, certain symptoms and uh, certain parental allegations, mixed them together and published them. An outrageous, on-the-nose fraud, but the medical establishment was not emotionally uh, capable of recognising that such a thing could happen. And my motivation in all of this is precisely that. And I say in this book, right in the first chapter, the importance of this is not just about vaccinations, not about the, sa about the safety of children, or all of those things which, have, which are raised as being issues arising from this, but the question, if he could do, if Andrew Wakeful could do what he did... And I'll show you in this book what he did. Who else is out there doing what in science? Mm. Who else is doing it? Because it's, it's easy. Sci fraud in science is easy, particularly in biomedical science. We're using anonymized clinical cases. That's always what interested me. And I, I, and I have to say in terms of drawing attention to that and getting the medical establishment to take notice of this, I have failed. <laughs> wow. Okay, so if we go back to the, to the story as such, how did you get hold of... I mean, these, the, the data that uh, Wakefield said he had was anonymized and he wasn't even there. It was hard to get to. How did you get hold of the, the underlying documents? Well, the thing about these kind of people, and there are several on the world stage today, um, one of them is now running again for the White House, um, <laughs> they are incapable of recognising their own wrongdoing, let alone having any remorse over what they've done. Um, and when we published the first stories about the legal involvement, the source of the children, his patents for a single measles vaccine. Because he was a doctor, he had access to insurance money. And he sued me for libel. And in the UK, if you're sued for libel, you have to prove that what you've said is true. They don't have to prove what you said is false. You have to prove what he said was true. So he sued me, he sued the Sunday Times, he sued a television network, which I made a documentary for. Um, and it was the biggest mistake of his life. Um, because uh, if, you look at, um, if you look at what's just happened, we had a question last night in the, uh, in the quiz um, about uh, the lawsuit against Fox. And the lawsuit against Rupert Murdoch's fox uh, caused the, di the discovery of the secrets. Rupert Murdoch, people saying, yeah, yeah, we know Trump's lying, but don't tell the viewers that because they'll not watch our program. So they fabricated and allowed people to appear, you know, Rudolph Giuliani and these people uh, to appear on television just lying about the, the, the claim that uh, the American election was stolen. Uh, and Wakefield, in suing us, led uh, to the discovery of a huge amount of information. We got a court order against him 
requiring his lawyers to hand over to us, uh, specifically to me, the unredacted medical records of those children. And for one day only, I sat in my lawyer's office with a lawyer, sat at the end of the table and read those children's medical records. Now, as I did that, Wakeford's own lawyers went to the court in London and abandoned his action and said, no, no, we've, we've withdrawn the action, we're no longer suing, and I could not use those documents. I, I never physically had them. Um, I could not refer to them. Um, they were sealed. But I knew what was in them. So then, when it came to a hearing, a disciplinary medical board hearing, that ran for 217 days, which is longer than the trial of O.J. Simpson, um, I was sitting in the corner listening to the evidence and documenting the evidence day after day, week after week, until I was able to reconstruct the medical records of those children and to show that it wasn't just uh, that the children were rigged, he was paid by lawyers, he got his own products, but that he had systematically altered children's records, altered histories, altered diagnoses in order to fabricate the appearance of a link between the vaccine and autism. And the significance of that is that this is the acorn from which all the, the campaigning and the networks and the activities that went on to explode around the world when we had the uh, COVID-19 outbreak because Wakefield had already established his networks of anti-vaccine campaigning, all from that one paper, which eight months after that paper was published, the government, uh, the, the uproar from the British population was such, and particularly certain newspapers, including Rupert Murdoch's, um, so much concern over these, these vaccines that the government funded a, a lawsuit in London, which then produced another lawsuit in the United States, which, between, which even from London cost in, to the British taxpayer and to the defendant companies, pharmaceutical companies, in US dollars brought up to date, more or less, 100 million US dollars to create a global anxiety launched from a London hospital, launched by a London medical school, chaired by the dean of the medical school and press released to the British media. $100 million campaign was launched in February 1998 and that echoes down the years yeah. to this day. And this was a class action on behalf of people whose children may have been, have been hurt by this or the that was the allegation? Or... That was the allegation, but what one learns and what has kept me involved for so long, I suppose, is that you would think, well, um, if there are all these parents out there, and we're constantly hearing about these parents, and um, we're having a discussion at lunch, actually, about, a, I think, a Swedish film that's been made um, dealing with some of these parents, um, presenting their stories and is that what you discover when you drill down into the individual cases, the children, their medical records, what their parents said, you find that it wasn't and it never has been people coming forward to report uh, that their, their, their view that their vaccine, that a vaccine injured their child. It was never them who were creating the, uh, the uh, momentum for this. They were being told, they weren't doing the telling, they were hearing in the media in particular of this allegation. And with autism, it's such a mysterious thing and it's changed its meaning over the last 30 years, the constant, well, I think the pharmaceutical industry is involved in that as well, the, the expansion of, um, of uh, the category of autism 
The pharmaceutical industry is expanding that all the time. So the way we're going, eventually everyone will have a diagnosis of autism and everyone will need to take a particular product in order to uh, deal with this uh, peculiarity of character that they may have. Um, that, um, that, that you'll find the same thing in almost every area of medicine. You'll find it in, in heart disease. You'll find it in Alzheimer's. You'll find it in erectile dysfunction for men. Um, that over the years, the categories are always expanding. Everything's always getting worse. More and more people need to be taking pharmaceutical products. And these are one of the, this is one of the drivers of this uh, change in the definition of autism. Um, but... Um, but yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's a great market to get in on. Mm -hmm. And um, these parents are, were being told that their children's autism was caused by the vaccine. They didn't know why their children had issues, various kinds of behavioural issues. And when somebody told them, ah, it was the vaccine, since everyone was, virtually everyone, virtually every child had been vaccinated, some percentage would come forward and say, oh, yes, that makes sense now. And I can tell you, if this weekend I published in the Sunday Times a report saying that um, there's, a, uh, there's claims of a possible link between Christian baptism and um, asthma in children, yeah, that night there will be parents going through their children's records and going, ah, yes, there, I see it, I see it. And they'll phone the lawyers and the lawyers will get the case, put it in the media and off you'd go. And you'd say, well, uh, we, we can't be sure, but there's a Professor Schmeckelgruber thinks it may be something <laughs> to do with the marble in the Christian fonts that is leading to, our, to um, asthma uh, that would take off. Yeah. And that I think that's off. quite natural. I mean, as yeah. a parent myself, if, if I had... Somebody told me that my child had been hurt by something, uh, I would probably do the same thing. So it's very easy to get people behind things like that. So just to finish off... Not, well, I don't know if you say it, uh, Andrew Wakefield is finished, but it, eventually he lost his medical license. Yes. Yes. He lost his license to practice medicine and his paper in The Lancet was retracted. And um, a joke I sometimes use, which sounds a bit sort of um, uh, self, um, I don't know, bragging or something. I, I'll Feel often, free to brag. Yeah, I think I, you've earned it. I often it. say yes. that um, um, many people have had papers in The Lancet, but I've had one out. And... Um, <laughs> With no medical or scientific uh, formal training, um, I'm very proud of that. Mm. And, um, but as I say, my motive, the driving force behind it, wasn't about persuading people to vaccinate or to be pro-vaccine or to highlight the problems of measles, although those, all those things are in play. It was really about getting to the, to the mysteries of of, of a, a problem in science, which is that fraud and misconduct is a lot wider than people think, and the, the, the journals and the colleges the, of, of um, science um, don't want to hear about it. They just don't want to know. Mm. No, I, th I think what, what you mentioned before is there's a, a trust from and sometimes misplaced trust uh, from the medical journals and the reviewers. And, and if you want to lie on a, on, a on a scientific paper, it doesn't have to be medical, it's probably easier than you think mm. because people don't assume that you would. Mm. Maybe we should do that. So, of course, Andrew Wakefield is not finished, as I said. He's still... Can you tell us a little bit? Well, it, first of all, it took a while before he did... Everything was revealed. It was in mm. 2011 when we uh, really, yeah, really knew. The, 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 evidence, the first evidence, of, uh, the most detailed evidence of fraud appeared in 2009 and 2011. Yeah. Um, and there's still more stuff um, uh, around. Yeah. yeah. 
But during that time, of course, the idea that there was a link had been lingering for over 10 years. Mm. It would be very, it's very hard to, to put the genie back in the bottle, if you mm. will. Yeah. And, it's, and it's, it, it's very hard to, um, how do we put it, um, to deal with this network that he created of parents who, in the course of the lawsuit and their efforts to win compensation, millions of, millions of dollars of compensation they thought they were going to win. None of them, none of them got one cent. Mm. Um, the, the bitterness and sense of guilt that Wakefield was able to uh, create in parents became a very, very potent force and is today a very potent force behind the networks that are exploited in the, uh, over the coronavirus vaccine and general ideas that somehow uh, there's some great conspiracy going on to deny the truth and to keep secret um, what, what uh, you know, we all know to be true. Mm. Yeah. And for Wakefield, it became a career. Really. Yeah. I mean, he's, well, yeah. he's been living on this story ever since and he's carried up by the, by the mistrust that he himself played, uh, placed and, and people are, some people are very unwilling to realise that he was mm. a fraud or, mm. or a liar. Yeah, because there is a phenomenon which I'm sure you're all aware of that um, a, a determined liar like Wakefield or like Donald Trump, these people... These people use, as Trump has been doing particularly recently, using their exposure, the fact that they've been caught, as evidence of their honesty. They say, well, it's all lies, it's all lies. They're, they're coming after me because I'm, because I'm on the side of justice and I'm standing for the American people or what have you. So it's like the old, what I understand to be practice in the sport of judo, is you take the, the force of the... Uh, oncoming uh, mm, uh, the opponent, yeah. uh, your opponent and use it against them. Um, but Wakefield was always, uh, since at least 2001, before I ever became involved, was always on a path to glory mm -hmm. um, over this. Mm. Yes? Can, can we ask questions? Yeah, yes, please, go ahead. Uh, but you should use the microphone. Oh. Where is it? <laughs> So when you're talking about what happened to Andrew, because he, he's had his career, or he still does have, but I keep thinking about, maybe you mentioned it in the book, but I didn't catch it. What happened with the patent that he actually filed? Because that sort of makes him a part of Big Pharma, and what would his anti-vax tail think about that patent? Yeah, well, it was, the, the thing is, it was, it was completely crazy. I mean, you only have to put it in front of any biomedical scientists and they kind of go through it and say, well, this is, this is ridiculous. What it was, I mean, I don't know if you, uh, I'm sure it's, it's been shown in Sweden in, in, in the appropriate translation, um, uh, a film by, um, uh, who made it, um, called The Producers, um, what's his name? Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks's Producers. And the premise of Mel Brooks's Producers is that if you make a very, very bad Broadway musical, a musical that flops, you can make more money than a musical that succeeds. And, uh, and the, the method there was, well, you swindle little old ladies for their savings and you get, you get 50 little old ladies to invest 50% of the production costs. It was very much like the producers. The... The, his vaccine was never going to work, but off the back of the public anxiety and the publicity, we've got a product for a, a safer vaccine for, to protect against autism, and it would also be a treatment for autism on the patent and a diagnostic. It was a miracle product, an absolute miracle product that could never have worked, but you would have got a lot of mug punters, as we call them in England, um, naive investors to give you their money. Exactly. And that's what it was about. Mm. So it was never approved? 
No, it was no, it was, could could never have worked. But you wouldn't know that if you were a mother of a child with autism and you'd started campaigning, and your hero said, "Ah, oh, now we've got, you know, this," you'd send him your money, mm. and that was the idea. But he was stopped. He was stopped from doing that by by somebody at the hospital where he worked, um, who knew more about these things than I could ever. Uh, and he just said, "This is right. This is a scam." Yep. Sort of scenes. I'm very curious what your opinion is about Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet. I do believe, please correct me if I'm wrong, that you actually met with a lot of resistance from The Lancet initially. Please elaborate on that. Yes, when right at the beginning, in, um, in February of um, uh, 2004, when we were about to publish the first Sunday Times report, just dealing with the involvement of the lawyer and the source of the children. Uh, I was told by the editor of the Sunday Times, you've got to make sure you've got this right. You've got to go to God, speak to God about this. So I arranged a meeting with the editor of The Lancet, uh, which took place on a Wednesday. We were due to publish on a Sunday, and then the following Sunday... And I told him about the source of the children and uh, the legal money and all of this. And um, there were eight of the uh, Lancet's editors there, including Richard Horton, the chief editor, making notes. Um, and what they did is they, they uh, announced their denial of what we'd found on the Friday afternoon to try and head off our story, to try and stop us, anyone taking any notice. But he made a terrible mistake because it's traditional in British politics. If you want to release a story to minimise its publicity, you release it on a Friday afternoon. For technical reasons, you release it on a Friday afternoon. Um, what they, and Wakefield, right from the beginning, had professional publicists working for him. Um, and so they released on a Friday afternoon a denial of my material, what we'd found. What they didn't realise was that, well, they must have been aware of this aspect. The Sunday Times is, was, and still is, um, the, by far, the most influential newspaper in Britain. Uh, we have Sunday papers that appear on just a Sunday. It's, it's, it's during the week, six days a week at the moment, the Times publishes, and on the Sunday, the Sunday Times publishes. And the Sunday Times at that time sold 1.4 million copies. So all the other newspapers and TV stations knew what was going to be on the front page of the Sunday Times. They knew that on a Friday. So they all ran the story on the Saturday, on the Friday night and the Saturday. So we'd done all this work... So then we ran it again, saying, you know, now we reveal the full story, which wasn't, but it was just a way of <laughs> telling the same story again that everyone else had already told. And there was just this massive eruption in the British media um, because nobody knew that this man who claimed to be um, a moral... He claimed... It, he said that it was his, it was his moral duty um, to um, uh, call on parents to... Uh, uh, ask for single vaccines and boycott the MMR vaccine until, in his words, this issue has been resolved. He was making out that he was uh, motivated by conscience and Britain just looked at that and they thought, OK, so vaccines and autism plus a lawyer. Ah, now I get it. <laughs> and they got it and everyone got it. And that, from that point, the vaccination rates with MMR, which have been, I should have done it this way, which have been going down and down and down and down. From that day, they stabilised and went up and up and up and up until they got back to where they were before Wakefield mm. ever did this thing. Mm. So uh, Richard Horton uh, made a big mistake in trying to cover up for Wakefield. Yeah. I wonder how, well, I've never been the chief editor for such a magazine but or journal. I wonder how he thought they would get away with it. Wouldn't it be better? I don't know. This is just hypothetical. Wouldn't it be better to say, oh, this, we were fooled as well. They could have played it the other way around and they could have pointed at Andrew Wakefield and say, because they must have realized at the time that they were in the wrong, right? 
Well, Richard Horton, the editor, did say we were deceived. Mm. We were deceived. The only thing is, it took him another six years before he would say it. It took six years to prepare the General Medical Council, the British Medical Board, for its, with its 217-day hearing to confirm that everything we'd said in the first place was true. Um, and then the editor said, oh, yes, we were deceived, and then under the carpet. I think we have another question, but you need to get the microphone. You should sit up front. Well, apart from Wakefield, you told us that there was uh, another dozen authors on mm. this article. Whatever happened to them? They had no idea. They had no idea. Um, they, they didn't even know which child was which. Now, I'll tell you this. I'll give you an example of the involvement of the other authors. This paper was five pages, 4,000 words. And on the front, the very first page, it said that these children had been diagnosed, their, their neurological status, their behavioural status had been diagnosed. Um, well, it was, it was directing one to a footnote to, to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, fourth revision, DSM-4, yeah? But on the front of the Lancet paper, it said that they were assessed against HMS-4 criteria, right? Now, all the authors saw that. HMS in Britain means, when we had a queen, Her Majesty's ship, yeah? Nobody even noticed that the children were diagnosed against the criteria of a ship. <laughs> yeah? They didn't know which child was which. They were just glad to have their names on a paper in the Lancet. Because having your name on a paper in the Lancet is a big career-advancing uh, proposition, especially if you're involved in clinical medicine. They didn't know which child was which. The chief pathologist who was involved in it denied that the children... One of the things that Wakefield claimed was that the children had a bowel disease. The pathologist involved denied this, but she shut her mouth. She, originally, she wasn't even granted authorship. She challenged... When she saw the paper without her name on it, she said, well, I don't remember these children having um, what he called um, enterocolitis, inflammation of the large and small, I don't rec uh, and small intestine. I don't remember that. So they gave her authorship and she withdrew her objection. There's another author, even today, more than a decade after the paper has been retracted, he still has this paper on his... Uh, resume by which he's um, selling um, uh, medical advice to parents of children um, just to have their name and they did not give a damn what that paper said he could have filed his lunch and if that got them a credit in the Lancet they'd have been happy mm. this whole thing about you know co-authors joint responsibility peer review reproducibility, it's all bullshit, largely, to enable great publishing behemoths that stand behind the, behind the journal Nature, behind the Lancet, uh, the British Medical Journal has the doctor's trade union behind it. They do not have people sitting around with their feet up just waiting for someone to come along and make an allegation of research fraud because it's a lot of work, it's a lot of time. No, no, let's just leave it. You know, If it's wrong, someone else will do a paper that corrects the record. You know, That's, that's the way they want to play it. Um, they just do not want to hear about these things. Those authors did not want to know about... Um, and just like the chief pathologist challenged what was in the paper... The chief, the, the, the only psychiatrist should have been a paediatric neurologist, but it was a psychiatrist who did the, some of the um, 
psychiatric diagnoses, um, he challenged it. He said, well, I, I just simply don't, I don't think that the, the description of them is accurate in the paper. But he, again, didn't do anything about it until years later when, when he was sitting being questioned in front of the medical board as to mm. what was what. They just, they just, you know, the idea... I, I did a... I was invited... At, I get invited to do a lot of things. And one of the things I got invited to do was to write a piece for Nature about all this. And I said, what needs to be done is for, in every country, to, for there to be inspections of laboratories, potential inspections, so that you could potentially find yourself inspected. If you run a lab of being inspected by an outside agency, schools have it. In the UK, schools have it. Prisons have it. Um, all kinds of institutions have it. Restaurants. You, if you're running a restaurant in the UK, you could be sitting there frying up your burgers and a public health inspector will come and check what's going on, what the food and what the temperatures are and all that kind of stuff. And I said that in this nature piece. Yeah. The editor, not the top editor, but the commissioning editor, he said, we can't print this. And I said, well, why not? He said, well, because it says that scientists, there's no more reason to assume that scientists are more honest than restaurant managers. We can't say that. <laughs> We're the house magazine of science. And they killed it. <laughs> then, when it came to the COVID pandemic, and because I knew a bit about the polymerase chain reaction and a lot of the issues and vaccines and this kind of stuff, the British Medical Journal asked me to write a piece. And I began, if not now, then when? Basically saying science needs to be tightened up now. Pub the public is entitled to have trust in what is being published. So I'm saying, if not now, with this huge global pandemic, if not now, then when? And the British Medical Journal came back to me and said, we can't print this. We need something more nuanced, <laughs> more subtle, and they wouldn't print it either. Mm. So this is where you, in the start of this, you said something that we, a lot of people, probably including myself and, and people here, we're missing the point with this. So this book, The Doctor Who Fooled the World, let's make, market it a little bit, um, buy it, read it. The point buy is two, not... Buy two. Buy two for your friends. <laughs> And, but uh, the point is not, or there's a point, of course, in the, about vaccines and, and, and stuff, but the one big point is that we need to look at the system itself and how do peer review work, how do science work in general. Do, do you yes. agree? I, mean, yes. I don't want to put no, words in your mouth. No, that's absolutely right. And yeah. this is, this is the, this, what he did is, the, is really the boutique example of what you can get away with. And he got away with it. The only reason he was caught, the bottom line of why he was caught, was that he picked on an area of science that was of such immediate and personal interest to families and therefore the readers of the Sunday Times that I could be financed over... Just to get the first story out was four months' work. Today, I mean, I don't know how many journalists ever would get to spend four months on a story. But that's why he got caught. If he was doing this in an area like heart disease or um, Alzheimer's or anything, well, maybe Alzheimer's, yeah, maybe, maybe Alzheimer's is getting a bit near the knuckle. But most areas of science, no journalist would ever get supported to go after what had happened. Um, and that's the reason he was caught. I mean, even the one I did in 1986 about the guy who faked his work on the contraceptive pill, that was over in about two months, one of which required me to go to Australia, which is quite nice. Um, <laughs> so that's, how, that's the only reason he got caught. So think about all the other areas of medicine, all the other areas of science, where people are just... There's a woman called Elizabeth Bick. 
She's a, she's a, she's a, I think she's a molecular scientist of some kind. And she finds fraud in research just about every day of the week just by looking at the images in, um, in biomedical publishing. And image manipulation is now very easily detected. What I was able to do was something different, not looking at the page itself, but going around the back of it and identifying the individual patients, what was wrong with them, what wasn't wrong with them, when they were diagnosed, what the diagnosis was, and all the, the blood tests and everything for each of those children, an almost impossible task. And I thought initially it would be an impossible task. But um, no one has ever done that before. Yeah. I think we're going to have to round off a little bit. I think you had a question, Don. Maybe you should, uh, should maybe that's the last question. Or if you have some, a really good question, we'll probably fit it in. Is it on? Right. My name is Dan Larhammer, and I've been telling my students in medicine and biomedicine about your achievements for 10 years or so. Thank you. Uh, I have a question about what happened to the others around Wakefield, uh, the dean, the lawyer, the leadership of the hospital. Were there any consequences for them? Not yet, no. But, um, you know, watch this space, because um, uh, assuming I don't die before them, uh, they'll be... Uh, They'll be in your faces in due course. Because it wasn't just him, it required other people's involvement. Uh, and, um, yeah, so, yeah, watch this space. Mm -hmm. Are there any other questions? No? Then again, I want to do a little bit of a commercial here. The, the Doctor Who Fooled the World, it's available in English, it's available in, on, uh, on Kindle... Yeah, the easiest, the easiest way to get it is from Amazon, uh, yeah. um, where if you order one, you can uh, give it a five-star review when you get through it. And it's quite easy. It's not, it's not a technical scientific uh, book. Uh, it's, I think you'll find there's a bit of a, bit of a story there. Yeah. I also think it's available in Polish and French. If in you, Polish? If you, that, uh, unfortunately, not in Swedish. Not yet. Swedish. No. Chinese. We've sold it in China. Okay, So that Good. should make a difference. All right. So, but uh, Brian Deere, thank you very much for your Pleasure. time. Thank you. Thank you. So that that was uh, Brian Deere and me talking. Mostly Brian Deere, of course. I'm just prompting him a little bit. Uh, very interesting. I think there was some nuances that we haven't heard before, mm -hmm. especially his, if I may try to sum summarize one of his conclusions, it is that maybe the lesson is not only that Wakefield was a fraud, but perhaps also we should learn that the system that we have with peer review always assumes honesty on the part of the person who's writing the paper. So we, we take care of making sure that there could be mistakes and we the peer reviewer looks into the data and the conclusions and you criticize it. And you, but you assume on some level that the person writing the paper is honest. And actually, even mm -hmm. if there are mistakes, there are honest mistakes. But this was not an honest mistake. And the system didn't catch that. That is something that we should remember for, for the future because, of course, there are fraudulent researchers sometimes. Yeah, we have to pre yeah. be prepared for that. I, I don't know what to do about it. I don't think uh, Brian Deere has a solution to mm -hmm. it, but it's a good observation, to yes. say the least. You want to trust those people, you know, mm. and it doesn't, the whole system doesn't work if you don't trust them. <laughs> yeah, no. So that's, that's why that makes this so hard because you have to be skeptical and, and cautious but you also have to trust them at some point. Yeah. So it's really hard. So now, you, you don't expect researchers to be blatant liars. Yeah. That, that's, not, that's not the assumption going in. And uh, sometimes they are. All the more uh, kudos to Brian Deere for his yeah. work. So thank you, Brian Deere, for doing that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, that concludes our show today. Mm -hmm. So to Andras, we missed you. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in week after week. Please keep doing so. And Pontus, to you, thank you. Thanks a lot. 
And until next week, goodbye. Hej då! Tschüss! Wieslat! This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesb.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe I should look yes. up the number. Yes, we have the time. ASP, AU, here we go. The archive interview index. Brian is at the top here because it's alphabetical. It was three. 238.